Our Bible reading is from Titus, chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, and it's page 965 in the English Bibles, 965, and 1934 in the Chinese Bibles. Titus 1, 1 to 9. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Saviour. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable. One who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Well, thank you, Deb. Brothers and sisters, uh, good morning, friends and guests. Welcome. Great to have you here, kicking off a brand new sermon series. Pete Stebbins, my name, on staff at Norwest. Uh, let us pray and ask that God speaks to us through his word. Let's pray. Good and gracious King, we ask as we now come to sit under your word, you will speak to us from this letter that was written so many hundreds of years ago. Father, it is a letter now written to us. Will you make us look more like Jesus, live more like Jesus, and love more like Jesus because of it? Pray this in his name. Amen. You know, uh, history, you'll know this, but history is full of examples of people uh, who once they come face to face with Jesus, uh, once they come to know of his great love for them, his amazing grace to them, uh, his forgiveness of their sins, they are forever changed, never to be the same. Uh, history is full uh, of stories of such people. Uh, people like Ella Simon. I'm almost positive you've never heard of Ella Simon, but you have driven on her bridge. If you've ever driven north from Sydney and travelled over the Manning River at Taree, you've driven over the Ella Simon Bridge. Ella was born in 1902. She was raised in the Aboriginal settlement of Perfleet, now called South Taree, uh, a place of cruelty, racism and abuse. And yet it was here that she met the Lord Jesus Christ and committed to sharing Jesus for all her days with Aboriginal people across New South Wales. 
You see, Jesus so marked this woman that her whole life was changed. She centered all who she was, all that she did around Jesus, his gospel, and his worship. Do you ever wonder if you have been changed by Jesus like that? That is, do you ever wonder if you are becoming more and more like Jesus? As you look back six weeks or six months or maybe even six years, can you see how you are becoming less the person that lives by sight and more the person who lives by faith? Now, if you're anything like me, you might sometimes wonder, look, am I any different to the way I was six months, six years ago? Have I become more like Jesus, more desiring to know him, to follow him, to speak of him, less captured by the world, less interested in how much money I'll have in retirement, more concerned about my neighbours who don't know Jesus, more concerned about the good works that he's called for me to do. I guess the question for all of us this morning is this, Has Jesus overtaken you? Has he marked you and shaped you? Does he, by the power of his spirit and through his word, impel you and move you and guide you in the decisions you make? If you're anything like me, uh, I reckon the answer that probably comes to mind right now is, I'm not sure. Which is code, isn't it? It's a way that we admit to ourselves, I actually don't think so, without going the whole way and admitting it to ourselves. So friends, this whole sermon series is called Grace Does Good. Because that's the question that the book of Titus is going to ask us. This is the idea that comes up again and again in the book of Titus. This idea that when you know Jesus, everything changes. Out of the realisation and reality of what Jesus has done, Titus shows how we are changed people who live more and more changed lives. And the big idea that you're going to see over the next four weeks, run through Titus, is that there is this inseparable link between what you believe and how you behave, between your conduct and your convictions, which is why we've called it Grace Does Good. Because grace does good. So today we're going to start at the beginning. We're going to think about the background for this letter, why it was written. Really instructive. So helpful for for what uh, comes. We're then going to look at Paul's intro in the first four verses, who who sets us up for the rest of the letter. Then we're going to think about what Paul has to say about leadership in God's church. Well, let's look at our background. The year is 65 AD, and the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to his Greek friend, his brother in Christ, a man named Titus. Now, Titus is the man who Paul has left on the island uh, of Crete. That's what we're told in verse 5. You can see that if you've got your Bibles open. You see, what has happened at some point is that Paul and Titus have visited Crete, and they've planted a church there. And now Paul has sent Titus back as a bit of a bishop, if you like, to oversee and care for this new church and churches on the island. Now, I'm not sure how much you know about Crete. Uh, Today it's part of modern-day Greece, and it looks a little like this. Who wants to be a missionary to Crete? And it's almost like Titus is sitting down the back and he looks at me, I'm in. 
throws his hand up. I mean, it's not a bad place. Uh, and of course, that's pretty much exactly how it looked 2,000 years ago, minus the umbrellas. But it was a very different place in Titus's day. And what it was actually like 2,000 years ago is going to become really important for all that we read moving forward. You see, there's a key thing that we know about uh, Crete at this time, uh, at the time that the letter was written, and it was this. Uh, Crete was full of not nice people. Uh, in fact, despite the lovely beaches, it was an island full of reprobates. Now, if that sounds a bit harsh and judgmental to you, you're right, it does to me as well. But don't believe me. Listen to Polybius, a Greek historian who wrote 150 years before Jesus was born. This is what he says. Greed and avarice are so native to the soil in Crete that they are the only people in the world among whom no stigma attaches to any sort of gain whatsoever. Cretans, by their ingrained avarice, are engaged in countless public and private seditions, murders and civil wars. The Cretan constitution deserves neither praise nor imitation. You could find no habits in prevailing in public life more steeped in treachery than those in Crete and no public life more inequitable. So who wants to be a missionary to Crete now? Titus, still keen to go? You see, the view of historians is that Crete at this time was full of people lacking in ethical principle known for stealing as well as harbouring robbers and pirates. Even within the letter himself, Paul quotes one of Crete's own poets who says this about himself and his uh, fellow countrymen. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And so when you think about it, it's not surprising that this surrounding cultural context of the people of Crete has had an impact upon the small, fledgling, brand new church in Crete. And this background's just so helpful for us to make sense of some of Paul's very strong teaching in this letter, particularly in the area of church leadership, which we'll get to today. Well, let's dive in. So the first four verses of Titus seem to be just one of these long introductions that Paul uses to start his letters with lots of theological ideas jammed into an extended sentence. Uh, if you're anything like me, you get to these starts of letters and we jump over it until we get to the instructions in the letter, which are easier to take in. The problem with that, of course, is that these first four verses give us the reason Paul writes this letter in the first place. Here's what we're going to find. Truth is up for grabs in the church in Crete. Their own poets have admitted that they're all a bunch of liars, but that doesn't fly in God's church. And that doesn't work when it comes to the preaching of the gospel, where truth is everything. So Paul starts his letter to Titus by putting forth his own qualifications, his own love for truth at the very start of such a letter. Verse 1, Paul calls himself, have a look, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, what does he mean by this? He, he then describes what he means by this. Uh, I guess the best way to put it was, if you're at a party and you bumped into the apostle Paul and you were to say to him, Paul, why is it that you wander all over the ancient Near East from town to town, city to city, speaking about Jesus? What, what, what drives you? Uh, he would have said to you, oh, it's really simple. Uh, my aim is threefold. Number one, to grow the faith 
of God's chosen people. That is, God has appointed people for eternal life. And one of my goals is to grow their faith that they might come to trust in God more. That's verse 1. You can see it there. Secondly, he'd say, oh, but there's another reason I do it. Uh, it, It's to build the knowledge that people have in what is true and right. So they know how to live better in this world. So they know how to live better lives. That's the second part of verse 1. And then he says, and I always want to do that with an eye on the future, encouraging people to keep their eyes on the fact that Jesus will come to take us home, to be with him forever. That's verse 2. So we learn here that Paul's purpose for writing this letter to Titus, as Titus is going to be planting and growing these churches, is that Paul longs for Titus to build a church full of people who are growing in their trust in God, who are living new and different lives to everyone around them because of their knowledge of the truth about God, and who are finding their rest and peace in the fact that God has secured their futures, our eternities, in Jesus Christ. Well, having laid out the purpose in verses 1 to 4, in verse 5, Paul turns to some very significant issues that are going to lie ahead for the Cretan church. So I want you to keep in mind that the church in Crete is very new. And I want you to keep in mind that the Cretan people are a corrupt people by every measure. Paul then starts his letter by helping Titus think through who he should appoint to senior leadership in this church, in this town, in this island. And this is one of two New Testament passages where Paul addresses this topic, this topic of senior leadership in the life of God's church, uh, what's known as here uh, as eldership. And there's three things that Paul points out in this short passage that I want to show you that help us all think about leadership in God's church, not just 2,000 years ago, but today, and at Norwest, as we think these things through carefully as well. So here's the first. God's church is to be led by elders. Now have a look at verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So it seems like there's not just one church in Crete, but there are churches all over the towns on the island. Now the word elders here is the word that means one with oversight. In our context, it would refer to the most senior leadership in a church. And it refers to the leaders of a church community that have preaching and teaching responsibility. Now, perhaps this first point may not surprise you that God's church is to be led by elders because your experience in church is that church, churches always need leaders to, to run them. But many churches get themselves mixed up in this. I was recently speaking to someone uh, who goes to a church where things between the minister and the congregation has sadly gone very badly. And in that confusing and painful and messy context, some people have started arguing that the church would be better off without a leader at all. Uh, One person said words to the effect of, we don't need a leader here at our church, we are led by the Holy Spirit What we actually need is a pastor, someone to care for us. Now, as pious as that sounds, and I mean that in the most generous sense, what that actually does is take a whole range of biblical words and ideas and mixes them up. 
Because for Paul, his view of planting churches and leading churches and growing churches is very simple, straightforward and clear in the New Testament. If you've never heard this, here's how it works. Find a group of people who have never heard of Jesus and speak to them about Jesus. Step one. When some of them come to trust in Jesus, get them to gather together. That's called a church. Step two. Step three. Appoint elders over those new believers. You see, elders as Paul sees it, are absolutely to give pastoral care to churches. But elders are also to humbly, always humbly and always graciously, lead, teach and preach to God's people to encourage them and build them up in their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. First point that we see here, God's church is to be led by elders. That's God's model as we see it acted out in Paul. Secondly, Elders in God's church are to be men. Now, perhaps this one sounds a little jarring to your ears. Particularly if you are newer to church and newer to thinking about what the Bible says about church leadership. It might sound especially jarring if you have been following and perhaps influenced by the very recent perspective coming through in our media that men and women are essentially identical in every way except for plumbing. God has a different view. And God's word has a different view. See, what the Bible teaches is that men and women are entirely equal and beautifully different. Equal in creation, equal in redemption, equal in the sight of God and equal in the sight of one another. And part of that equality means that both women and men who love Christ are full members of God's church in every single way. That's not so remarkable to us, but in the first century it was. The fact is, that's what the Bible says and it is our experience. But part of the beautiful difference is that men and women have different responsibilities within God's church. And in the two passages that describe the criteria for being an elder in the life of God's church in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, where we are today, one of the criteria Paul lays down, which comes up in both places, is that elders are to be men. Now, the reason for this is because the office of elder is an office that requires the one holding it to be able to teach God's word publicly. And for the Apostle Paul, uh, 1 Timothy 2, he shows us that for him, teaching is an authoritative act. For Paul, for us, in God's good design, it is men who have the responsibility for teaching in mixed church gatherings. This is not a cultural, antiquated, Middle Eastern, patriarchal perspective Paul has. And we know that because uh, in 1 Timothy 2, Paul shows us that his view is shaped from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where Adam was created before Eve, revealing Adam's God-given place of sacrificial servant leadership over his wife. Both Adam and Eve equally created in the image of God. 
But God has given them different yet complementary roles to play in both the family and the church. That does not mean that women play no leadership in God's church. Far from it. Women are to play very significant and very crucial ministry leadership roles in God's church and here at Norwest. And it's actually incumbent upon us to ensure that women's voices are heard and maximized in the life of God's church in every way appropriate. Can I make a personal observation at this point? You know, in so many churches, this here is such a large issue. This is a lightning rod issue which is fought out at every available opportunity. If you're new here, welcome. And I need you to know that this is just not a large issue in this place. It's just not. I've been here nearly 10 years. Now, I actually don't know why that is the case here at Norwest. Perhaps it's because our godly women here feel affirmed and honoured within the life of the church. I believe that's part of it. Perhaps it's because our godly women here who have a different view on this in, re, uh, in review to uh, the, the roles of women in the life of the church, so love the ministry of the gospel in this place that they're willing to allow it to be a second-order issue here. I've had one woman say that to me. She said, why would I talk about this? We love what God's doing here. I've got a different view, but it's, it's a fringe issue for me. Fact is, I don't know why it's not a big issue here. It's just not. I just love the way that we are able here at Norwest to serve together. And James, Craig and I, our experience here at Norwest is that so many issues, not this one alone, but so many issues that divide churches across Sydney, factions about this and camps on that, they just don't exist here at Norwest. Not sure why. Don't care why, to be frank. <laughs> just praise God for the godly unity we have as we seek to live for Jesus' glory in this place. Well, if you thought that was the hard part of the passage, you're wrong. It's now coming up. Thirdly, those men who are elders are to live blameless lives. So in verse 6, we read that an elder must be blameless. This is worth thinking through. The word blameless does not mean perfect. There's a Greek word for perfect. It's not used here. The word that is used here does not mean without blemish, but without blame. They're different. And the word blameless means to be unaccused, to stand unaccused. What this means is that the elder in God's church is to be a person whose character is one of unquestionable integrity. Uh, one who, uh, if an accusation was made against them, the church's first response is not one of, yeah, I'm just totally unsurprised by that. That's actually what I expected would have happened. No, that's not the response. Uh, rather a response of, I am shocked to hear that. that. That can't be right. We need to look into that. Elders in God's church are to be men marked by no disgrace. Blameless. And blameless in three areas. Firstly, in their marriage and family life. This is verse 6. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife. Now, what Paul is saying here is that an elder must be a man who has been married to only the one woman and who has not been led astray by sexual 
temptation. Come on, that's a bit old-fashioned, isn't it? I mean, according to Vicky Campion, in regard to her affair with Barnaby Joyce, you can't really help who you fall in love with. And I mean, look, it's not the 1950s. Is it such a big deal if an elder in God's church, your minister, has an affair? What if I told you that last night I actually slept with another woman? Brie and I talked about it in the car on the way to church, a bit more to talk through, but, you know, it just happened. <laughs> just happened. Does that change something for you as you look at me and think about that? Of course it does. You see, despite the growing view in our world that we all have free sexual agency and that no one can tell you who you should or shouldn't sleep with and that we actually shouldn't call it unfaithfulness when you cheat on your husband or wife because that's too negative. Better off calling it an affair. That's a bit more neutral. Have you heard that? The fact is there is something about commitment and faithfulness that we all link to being of good and noble character, don't we? We do. Commitment and faithfulness. Just like the character of the God we worship. Elders are to be blameless in marriage. Not just marriage, but also their parenting so the second part of verse 6, elders would be men whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now this opens a lot of questions, doesn't it? How can any church have any minister running it? Um, how can, uh, some of the questions that come up, how can a parent firstly control what their children believe? How can I control what someone else believes? Another question, define wild and disobedient. My eight-year-old at the time once threw paint on my new white blinds. I was not happy. Dad was a little wild. She was disobedient. <laughs> Thirdly, how do you define child? Look, there is so much to say about this, but let me paint the big picture. Paul is saying this. If a man is not able to manage his own family, then how on earth can he be expected to manage the family of God? If a man is not able to lead his own children to Christ, those who are most influenced by his godliness, how on earth will he ever be able to win strangers to the love of Jesus Christ? Now, I'm not saying this is easy. And I'm not saying I fully understand all the implications of it. I'm just saying that that is what God teaches us through his word. Elders should be blameless in their marriage and family. First thing we see. Second is this. An elder is to be blameless in character and conduct. Verses 7 and 8. Can you have a look at that? You know, it's very interesting because we live in a world that often applauds competency at the expense of character. That is, if you deliver results, then we can overlook personal shortcomings. Now, I once lived next door to, some of you heard me say this before, I once lived next door to the family of one of Sydney's leading media executives at the time. He was regularly on TV, in the papers, speaking about where he was leading the organisation. Uh, next door to me lived his wife and four children. He wasn't there anymore because he had moved out with his secretary, his new, much younger lover. Chaos and grief reigned in that home next door to us. But his personal immorality did not matter professionally. He was so good at his job. Not so with elders in God's church. Because what elders are to do 
is to flow out of who elders are to be. And character is king. The leading thought of both verses 7 and 8 is that elders, have a look at this, elders are to be masters of themselves. That's Paul's big idea here. They are to be men who are in control, not controlled by insecurity or a wild temper or alcohol or money. That's verse 7. Notice what he's doing in verse 7. He's describing the native of Crete. But rather, men are to be generous in control, men who love what is good. That is verses 8's description. Notice who that is. That is the description of the man of Christ. So I wonder if you notice what Paul is teaching Titus here as he's saying, Titus, go and find leaders for the church in Crete. Elders for God's church are not to be filled uh, with Crete, but with Christ. Elders in God's church are not to be Cretan, but Christian. Elders in God's church are to be godly, not worldly. Which means that when worldliness comes in upon the church in all its guises, elders are to be men who will stand firm, clear-eyed, soft-hearted, yet with wills of steel, and who will guide God's household, teach God's word, and serve God's people through that. Third area, final area, that elders would be blameless. You can read it in verse 9. More of this in, in, the, in the series to come. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. They must hold firmly to the trustworthy message. Notice that idea of truth coming through. That is, the leaders of God's people must be so personally and deeply convicted of the truth of the message of the gospel, which, which has been handed down from Jesus to the apostles and which is now recorded for us in the New Testament and Old, Old Testament. So committed to it should be God's elders, so convicted by it, even the parts they don't fully understand, of which there's a number, that he is still able to teach others. Do you see how important teaching is to the role of elder? And not any teaching, but teaching the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Teaching the gospel. Two aspects there, you'll see it. Uh, we're not even going to touch this, that's to come. One positive, build up and strengthen those in their faith. The flip side of that coin is refute those who oppose them. We don't like that so much. More of that next week. Let me conclude. Uh, our series for the next four weeks, which I'm excited by, if you haven't been able to tell, I am, uh, is called Grace Does Good. And what we're going to see uh, over the next four weeks is that's exactly what happens. Uh, that God's remarkable kindness to us in Jesus, in his life for ours, in his death for ours, changes us and makes us a people eager to love him, serve him and do good in his world. And today, uh, we've just thought about the way God's created his church to be led. And it's by men who are eager to do good. And I want to ask you today, I want to call upon you today to pray for your leaders here at Norwest. Both the elders in this place, as well as those who lead alongside them. Will you commit to praying for them that they will be eager to do good? Are you not happy with your leaders here? That's okay. 
pray them out. Pray them out. God is a powerful God. And if you believe that there are significant character flaws and moral failings in the leaders God has given you, pray them out because God's church deserves nothing less than those prayers from you if you're convicted by that. If you think that the leaders you have in this place right now are right for this time, for this season, then pray that God will make them both men and women of the deepest character. Fundamentally and forever changed by the grace of God. And willing to lay down their lives for both Jesus and his people. Eager to do good. Let's pray. Good gracious Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you that you don't leave us confused or in the dark about how to lead this thing called church, this weird gathering which is so much more of than a mutual interest community group. We're so much more than scouts or a soccer club or anything like that. We're family. And we want to thank you that you show us and, and let us know how we should be led. Father, will you firstly make us all people willing to be led, every one of us, but not by any leadership, by godly leadership, sacrificial servant leadership. And Father, will you continue to make us a church where factions do not rule, but Christ does. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, here at Norwest, we uh, like to take questions or comments after sermons. Why do we do this? There's a whole range of reasons. One of them is we know that our ministers get stuff wrong. And so it's an opportunity to uh, push back and ask questions uh, and to also see what God's Word says because we sit under God's Word as His people and we wrestle with that as a community. I'll give you a moment to get your thoughts together. Any questions or comments? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the question is, why is it so many denominations and churches have differing views on this? Uh, it's a very good question that's multi-layered. Uh, I think, firstly, let me just say, I do not want to demonize for a second anyone who thinks differently on what I believe the 11, 12, 13 passages on this topic of leadership in the church and on Women's leadership? Are we talking about women's leadership? Yeah, what, what, what they say. Mainly because there are very godly people who have a different view. But they're tricky views because you need to start interpreting what preaching really is and, what, uh, and what, what's the difference between preaching and teaching and maybe in the first century it meant this. Um, so let me take a step back. There are some churches who just think, well, it's old-fashioned. It's old-fashioned and the church needs to be modern and it's not appealing and how on earth will church grow if we look misogynistic and, and, and. That, that's some. There are others who, th who, who will say, and this is a very popular view in our media now, that if you um, do not give women access to every single role that men have, that is inequality because equality is understood to be sameness, which is smuggled in but is incorrect, I believe, um, and therefore you open the space, the place for domestic violence and abuse, uh, which it can, but obviously it doesn't have to, because the Lord Jesus didn't think it did. Um, and 
I take it doesn't here. We've talked about that before, late last year when we did 1 Corinthians 14. Um, but thirdly, there are those who have a different conviction under God as they sit under God's word. So whenever someone wants to speak to me about this, very often they'll start with, how can you say this because... And there's just no conversation about the Bible. So whenever I want to sit down with someone, I just want to say, let's open God's word and see what it says. And I think on the plain reading of Scripture, both when we understood, understand that it's written into a first century context, which was very different, and yet Paul was so countercultural in that context, so affirming of women in that context, um, I, I, I cannot escape that it's, it is what's right for God's church. More than that, and I'll finish on this, my experience is that church flourishes when this is done well. When godly, humble, gracious men lead God's church well and look to maximise the voices of godly women around them, which I think we are underdone in here and we are thinking hard about it, church works. And I also want to say the Bible says it's the way family should be led and I want to say my family works like that too. My family works when I sacrificially lay down my life for my wife and lead her through that and she responds by allowing me to lead like that. We've got a great marriage, not perfect, but great, because I think we try to follow what God says here. Raises stacks of other questions. Very happy to keep that conversation going. Any other comments or questions? Thank you. Philip. Uh, the, the question is, do we view community group leaders as elders? Um, not as New Testament elders, because we have a mix of male and female um, and I'm not sure, there is something authoritative about a senior minister or a, a senior assistant minister, James O'Craig, getting up and opening God's word, which is different to the authoritative nature of the teaching of a community group leader Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday night. And, and I think we all feel that. Like you sit here, I think you do. Maybe I'm, I could be on another planet here. But my guess is that when I'm standing here, when James is standing here preaching, we're sort of there, Bible open, we're sort of really, now we're not uncritically thinking, we're, We've trained you to don't check your brains at the door, but there is an authority that comes with, is it this? Is it the perspective? I don't know what it is. The lights? I don't know. The headset? You can borrow it. Let's see if it's that. Um, that is different to a community group leader. So we don't think community group leaders are elders in, like the New Testament. Here at Norwest, we think it's James, Craig, and me. But we think that community group leaders are very significant leaders. Deacons, if you want to look for a, um, uh, for a New Testament corollary, although it gets a bit tricky at that point, but very significant leaders in the life of our church who stand with us and help shepherd God's people alongside of us. It does get hard when you start to take clear biblical categories and apply them to how churches work, which is why, I'll finish on this, we have a Baptist church and a Presbyterian church and an Anglican church and an Uniting church and, 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 because the Bible is not clear on how to lead a church in terms of its strict policy. Here's what you must do. No, no, no. There's a range of ways you can lead church in both ways, godly and ungodly, and the principles are what you must lift and apply with grace into your context. Great question. Much more to think through. Looking forward to this sermon series. God bless you all.